All right, good morning, good morning. Welcome to Harvest Church. You can grab your seats. Grab your seats. My name's Curtis. I'm honored to be sharing the word with you this morning. Um, who's here, uh, like, you're in town for Labor Day weekend and you decided to come to church? Anybody? Yes? Steve? Hey, that's not you. What? <laughs> Yes, awesome. Gold star for each one of you. No, I'm just kidding. Um, no, but we're, this is going to be a really great uh, service today, just because the Word of, of God is so good. So even if you're not away on vacation, it's okay. It's going to be a great day. It's going to be a great morning. We're going to get into the Word here today. Daniel 9, 20 through 27. Um, and the title of today's message is God's Plan for Israel. God's Plan for Israel. And you may uh, see that title and think, well, why am I here? Why am I here? If this is just God's plan for Israel, I'm not a Jew. I don't live in Israel. Does anyone here live in Israel? No? No? Okay. All right. So you might be thinking, why am I here this morning? Is anyone thinking that right now? Yeah? Um, and I just want to say this morning that it's not all about you. Okay? And it's not all about me, right? <laughs> It's not all about me. You, you know, yeah, some people are learning this for the, for the first time. Um, no, <laughs> some people say, though, that, that the Bible is God's love letter to humanity. Have you ever heard that before? The Bible is God's love letter to humanity. And um, although the sentiment behind it is true, that God loves humanity, and it is his story about how he's reconciling us as his people to himself, um, it's really not set up as a love letter, right? When you, when you read through the Bible and you're reading through all these genealogies and all this stuff, you're like, this doesn't sound like a love letter. Um, and that's because every part of the Bible is not directly from God to you, written about you, okay? So that's why it doesn't sound like a love letter, because when I think of a love letter, I think of God writing, Dear Curtis, I love you so much. Hope you're having a great day today from God, right? It's not really set up that way. And um, there's, a, there's a comment, popular theory out there, this replacement theory that says that, you know, anytime in the Bible that's, that's talking about Israel, it's really talking about the church, and we can uh, put ourselves in the place of Israel whenever God's giving Israel a promise or he's talking to Israel that we can just slip ourselves in there and count it for ourselves, and, and that works. And really, that's not the case, right? Biblically, Israel is Israel in the Bible, and we are us. We're the church age. We're, the, we're church people, and Israel is Israel. Okay, everybody got that straight? We good? Okay. So not everything is about us. Yes, we're grafted into the family of God, um, but that doesn't mean that every verse in the Bible is written from God to you as a love letter. We got that straight. So... Um, we need to get that straight today because this portion of scripture that we're going through is covering God's redemptive plan for the people of Israel. It's God's big plan for them. That's why it's titled God's plan for Israel, okay? So, um, yes, there will be things that we can take away for our own lives that we can apply to our own lives. And yes, it, it will have an impact on us. Um, but this is about Israel and the Jews, and I think it's dangerous when we read ourselves into the Bible when we're not meant to be there in the, the spots where God's talking about Israel. We shouldn't, we're not there. That's Israel, okay? All right. Uh, did everyone get that? 
Did I communicate that well enough? Did everyone feel good about it? Okay, okay. Um, Vody Bauckham has this great quote in a sermon that he preaches, Why We Can Believe the Bible. And it says, um, The Bible is a reliable collection of historical documents written down by eyewitnesses in the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. They report supernatural events that took place in fulfillment of specific prophecies and claim that their writings are divine rather than human in origin. I think that's a really great definition of what the Bible is, just on a practical level. So last week we went through uh, Daniel 9, 1 through 23. We talked about Daniel's amazing prayer that he offers up to the Lord. And at the beginning of Daniel chapter 9, we are given a date. And maybe you're one of those people that just skims over dates in the Bible. When you read them, you just skim past it. It's like, oh, that doesn't apply. I don't know, even know why that's in there. Um, and maybe you've wondered to yourself, why does God include things like dates and times in the Bible? Well, we're going to see today why God includes things like that in the Bible. If the Bible is just a love letter, why does he include things like dates and times and genealogies and cities and all those things? So um, we'll see here that God communicates those things for a very specific reason that he's demonstrated for us in this passage today. So Daniel 9, it starts out telling us that Daniel was studying the book of Jeremiah, right? He's studying this book of Jeremiah, and he reads this prophecy about an exile that would be about 70 years long in Babylon. And he thinks to himself, wait, I'm in exile in Babylon. <laughs> and he realized that, that he is who's being prophesied about right there. And so he starts counting on his fingers and toes, right? He's counting as quickly as he can, like, wait, if it's 70 years long, how long have I been here? Um, and he, you know, we know from the previous chapters that he was an accountant at one point for the whole kingdom, so it probably didn't take him that long. Um, but he, he comes to the conclusion, wait, I've been here 67 years, the time is almost up, uh, just a few more years to go. And then he reads this promise in Jeremiah 29 um, that says, if you seek me with your whole heart, that you will find me. Isn't that the truth for us today? If you seek me with your whole heart, then you will find me. So Daniel reads that, and he, he, um, he reads that, and right away he's like, oh, I got to seek the Lord with my whole heart. So he prays this incredible prayer that's marked with humility and confessions of sin and taking responsibility for sin and its consequences, and he exalts the Lord and honors him for his faithfulness, right? And we, we learned about that last week. So if you, if you missed that, go check that out. And that, so this is where we pick up today. He's just prayed this incredible prayer. And um, so the passage of scripture that I have the pleasure and the honor of, of teaching on today is by a lot of biblical scholars considered to be the most important prophecy in all of the Bible. So you came on a good week, right? Because the Bible is good, not because I'm good. But um, so let's start, let's read this passage real quick together and then we'll, we'll get into it. All right, so Daniel 9, 20 through 27. Now, while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God, yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly reached me about the time of the evening offering. And he informed me and talked with me and said, O oh, Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. 
At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Now that uh, know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks, and the street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. And after the sixty-two weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the Prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood until the end until the end of the war desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering, and the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. I know what you're thinking, what a sweet love letter just to me from God. So it's this amazing prophecy. Um, so, so Daniel, right, he's on his face before the Lord. And then it says, while I was speaking in prayer, and we touched on this last week, um, and Gabriel says, at the beginning of your supplications, the command went out. Wouldn't, wouldn't you love if that's how God responded to your prayers? Like at the beginning, when you started uttering what you were praying, the command went out. Like I responded right away, right? God responds immediately to him. And he sends Gabriel to Daniel and, and reached him at the time of the evening offering, which is about 3 p.m. And he says, you are greatly beloved. That's the first thing he says to Daniel. You're greatly beloved. Obviously, God loves us all, but he reminds Daniel of his love relationship with God. And I found it interesting that the greatest prophet in the New Testament was John, who called himself the disciple that Jesus loved, right? And then in this passage, the greatest prophet in the Old Testament was Daniel, who was called greatly beloved in this passage. I think a close and intimate relationship with God seems to be the fertile soil for God to plant his insight, his wisdom, and his understanding in us. It's important for us to note that when Daniel approached God in his prayer, in this moment, he was approaching God about something that was very near to his heart, right? He's in the midst of this exile. He's been in the exile for 67 years. He's, he's seen so much over the 67 years. He's been removed from his, uh, his homeland and his people for all this time. So his focus was very much on his people's wrongdoing and the current exile that they were living in, Right? Daniel 9, 5 through 7, we have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled, even by departing from your precepts and your judgments. Neither have we heeded your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings and our princes, to our father and all the peoples of the land. O Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but to us shame of face. As it is the day to men of Judah to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, those near and those far off in all the countries to which you have driven them because of the unfaithfulness which they have committed against you. So he's offering up this amazing prayer, right, about the exile that he's in. 
But when God responds, he doesn't directly address what he's praying about. Have you ever experienced that? You bring something specific to the Lord and he responds in a very different way than you expect him to? No? No one? No one. Okay. So, he must have been thinking, right? He's in the midst of this exile. It's been very long. Has God forgotten about us? Has he forgotten about the people of Israel? We've been in exile for so long. Does God even consider us his chosen people anymore? Like maybe we're just not in the plan anymore. So Daniel was bringing this prayer to God about the 70 years of challenge that they're in the middle of. But God responds with a big picture, 490-year plan for Israel, right? He, He lays out the whole future of the Jews. When Daniel is saying, oh Lord, forgive us of our sins, he responds and gives this whole timeline of the entire future plan that he has for the Jews. He hadn't forgotten. He wasn't removed from them. He had a plan. So if you remember in the first uh, message in this Daniel series, we talked about how critics tried to dismantle and discredit the book of Daniel. Daniel confounds the critics. These critics recognize how, how accurately Daniel prophesies and predicts future events that they claim it had to have been written later than it was. No other religious writings dare to predict the future because they know that when that time comes and it's not fulfilled, it proves that they're false. The Bible is a quarter prophecy, on the other hand. The Bible doesn't shy away from prophesying the future, and it has been proven time and time again. So we know the critics are wrong, Um, and if you want to learn a little bit more about why the critics are wrong, you can go back and listen to that message. But this passage will talk about... um, one of the primary reasons why the critics are so working so hard to undermine this book, this passage right here, is, is why they want to undermine this book so badly. So each of the following verses that we're going to go through, verse 24, 25, 26, and 27, gives us a view into a different uh, time period within this prophetic uh, vision. So, Verse 24, I'll just go over them real quick. Verse 24 is a summary of the prophecy as a whole. Verse 25 gives us details about the first 69 weeks of Daniel's prophecy. Verse 26 is a picture of the sidetrack that we're on right now. And then verse 27 tells us about the 70th week of Daniel that's yet to come. So I hope you brought your calculator today. Did anyone bring their calculator? Phone doesn't count. Phone doesn't count. Yeah, okay. <clears throat> All right, verse, verse 24. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. So what is he saying? He's given us this overview, right? Seventy weeks are allotted for this, these six things to take place. Seventy weeks are determined for these six things to take place for the Jews and for their holy city, Jerusalem. This is the prophecy for them. So the first one that's going to happen is um, to finish the transgression. So uh, they're going to stop the transgressions that they have as a nation. Israel will stop the transgressions as a nation. Verse 2, make an end of sins. That's the daily sins of the people of Israel. 
The, the third one is to make reconciliation for iniquity. So, so they're going to be reconciled for the sins and transgressions that they've already made against God, the nation of Israel. The fourth one is to bring in everlasting righteousness. This is referring to the messianic kingdom. There'll be righteousness for an age. And the fifth one is to seal up the vision and prophecy, to fulfill all the vision and prophecy that's been given in Scripture. All of this will be sealed up, finished, and all fulfilled completely. And then the sixth one is to anoint the most holy. That's anointing the holy of holies within the new temple that will be built in Jerusalem within the millennial kingdom. So, if all six of these things are going to be happening in 70 weeks, and Daniel was given this prophecy, when will these 70 weeks begin, right? That's a natural question. When, when can we expect these things to begin? How many of your Bibles, if you have a Bible in front of you, does anyone have a Bible that says uh, 70 weeks, in the, that uses that interpretation, 70 weeks? 70 weeks? we got a couple. What about 77s? Does anyone say 77s? Yeah, a bunch of people. That's actually the better translation, 77s. Weeks or sevens, the root word is shavua. It simply means a unit of seven. It means a unit of seven. So it really, 70 units of seven is what we're looking at for the timeline of this whole thing. Dr. Arnold Frichtenbaum uh, describes the ideas of the units of seven in this way. Hopefully it'll help us get our minds around it a little bit. It's comparable to the English term dozen, which refers to a group of 12, right? By itself, the word does not reveal the items within the group of 12. It could be 12 eggs, 12 people, 12 cars. Only the context reveals what is meant by dozen. In the same manner, only the context reveals what is meant by Shavuim. He stated it would take 77s of years before the kingdom could be established. 77s of years is a total of 490 years. So we're looking at a 490-year prophecy. So we can see that it's not 70 weeks like is translated in some of our Bibles. It's not just a straight 70 weeks, but 77 time periods, 70 units of seven. So we're looking at 490 years. So when will those 490 years begin, right? If you're reading this passage, you're wondering, okay, when is this all going to start? When, when can we expect these things to be taking place? Was it when, the, when Daniel heard this prophecy? Well, in verse 25, we learn when the beginning of this will be. So verse 25, we see that when the clock will begin ticking, right? The clock will begin ticking in verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall and in, even in troublesome times. So when will the clock begin? from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem. There shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. What's seven plus 62? Yes, good work, good work. All right, so 69 units of seven years, right? So 69 times seven, if you multiply that by 360 using the Babylonian 360-day calendar, and accounting for leap years, okay, is everyone following me? Okay, we have 173,880 days, okay? From the time that the going forth of the command to uh, restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince. 
So, why does God include pesky details like this in Scripture? Why do these dates matter? <laughs> no, I'm not asking. I just figured I'd make it awkward for a second. So I'll show you why he includes these things. So um, <laughs> when did this time clock begin? It, it began at the command to restore and build Jerusalem. That happened in Nehemiah 2, 1 through 8. This story is when Nehemiah was burdened by the destruction of Jerusalem. So King Artaxerxes notices this and he asks him what's wrong. Nehemiah explains how he would like to go and restore and build Jerusalem. It specifies the date of that time. Nehemiah went to King Artaxerxes in the month of Nisan in the 20th year of Artaxerxes, okay? So we can calculate that down to the day. So we have the date of the command to restore and build Jerusalem. So we can count from that date. Is everyone tracking? We good? Okay. So in 1888, Robert Anderson, he was this uh, commissioner and metro of the Metropolitan Police Department and the chief of the Criminal Investigations Department for the Scotland Yard in London. He became the chief of the Criminal Investigations Department when Jack the Ripper was terrorizing London. And uh, Robert Anderson was also a lay preacher and an avid student of the Word of God. And he was knighted and given the title Sir Robert Anderson for doing the calculations to discover something incredible about Daniel chapter 9, verse 25. He was the first to do the math and find out that what event happened from the command 173,880 days later. Can you guess what happened all that time later? It was none other than the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. When the disciples, you remember this? When the disciples came to Jesus and they wanted to tell everyone about him, they wanted to tell everyone that he was the Messiah, and he said, my time has not yet come. You remember that? Why wouldn't he want everyone to know about him? Because he knew that the director was putting him on the scene at a particular time. God is orchestrating his plan of redemption from the beginning of time until the end of time. And Jesus knew that he was working on a divine timeline. It was prophesied down to the day that he would declare himself Messiah more than 570 years ahead of time. Can you see why the critics want to try to debunk Daniel? Verse 25, again, know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince. So right now we find ourselves in this interesting place. We find ourselves between the 69th and the 70th seven-year period where God is fulfilling his prophecy to the Jews in the church age where we are right now. So when we think of that timeline, we typically think of a continuous timeline. We think, oh, it's 490 years, so it'll be continuous, and we can count from the going forth of that command, 490 years, everything should be completed by now. So <clears throat> why would he use this term of the 77s? Why would he use that? I believe he uses this 77s or the groups of seven years, because not all 490 years are back-to-back. -back. They aren't continuous, so this last seven-year period is still yet to come. 
So this prophecy is broken up into three parts. So there's the first seven weeks, the 49 years until the city and its walls are rebuilt. Then 69 weeks, the 7 plus 62, which equals 483 years from the decree until Messiah the Prince appears, right? We've seen that. And the final 70th week, the 70th seven-year period, is to complete the rest of the prophecy. So verse 26 outlines a little bit of the, the area that we're in right now, this timeline that we're in right now. So it says, After the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood, and till the end of war of desolations are determined. So verse 26, again, a picture of where we are now. In the middle of Jesus coming back, Jesus the Messiah coming on the scene, but before the final seven-year period unfolds. You can think of it like a train going on a side track to just wait while another train passes. We're kind of on that side track right now, waiting until God is going to finish that prophecy, that, that last seven years that he promises to uh, fulfill for Israel. So after the 62 weeks, the Messiah shall be cut off. That's what it says. So it's saying immediately after the seven plus 62 weeks, the prophecy about the Messiah, the Prince, the triumphal entry predicted on that day down to the day he would be cut off. This biblical term was sometimes used to describe execution. Isn't that interesting? And then it says not for himself, not for himself, but for others, right? This prophecy says that right after his declaration as the Messiah, the Prince, he will be executed for others in their place. In their place. 570 years before it happened. So what do the Gospels tell us? On Sunday, Jesus rode in on Palm Sunday, right? He declared himself Messiah to the Jews. And then on the following Friday, he was killed, executed on our behalf. He took on the sin of the world on his shoulders. He took the death penalty we deserved and he paid the price for our sins. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we're going to celebrate that at the end of this service today. We're going to celebrate Jesus' sacrifice that he made in our place with, with taking communion. But we're going to finish up this first. So what's the, what's the next passage? What's the next part of this passage? It says, After the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood. So when did this happen? This was fulfilled in 70 AD with the Roman destruction of Jerusalem. But just before that, we see this important glimpse into who the Antichrist will be. Who destroyed the temple, right? It says the people of the prince who is to come. The prince who is to come is referring to the Antichrist. The same one who's the little horn that we see in Daniel 7, the same one that's the beast in Revelation 13. We can then gather that if the people um, who destroyed Jerusalem are the people of the prince to come, the Romans are the ones who destroyed Jerusalem, then we can draw that the conclusion that the Antichrist will have his ancestral roots in the ancient Roman Empire. So we can see in Daniel 7 also that the final world government will be an heir to the Roman Empire, right? So we can see a few things coming together here. So then in verse 27, Then he, the Antichrist, shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, 
one seven-year period. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. So this is when the 490-year prophecy will resume. The final seven years will, will unfold, right? So you might think it's strange that there's a gap. So uh, David Guzik has this great quote that we can read that he kind of helps us understand why there might be a gap in this, why there is a gap in this prophetic um, word. So taking the description of what would be accomplished in the 70 weeks from Daniel 9.24, we know that the 70 weeks are not yet complete, right? Yet the events promised in the first 69 weeks are fulfilled, indicating that there is a lengthy pause in the 70th, 70 weeks, between the 69th and the 70th week. The 70th week will begin when the coming prince shall confirm a covenant with the Jewish people. These gaps or pauses in prophecy may seem strange to us, but they're common. Comparing Isaiah 9.6 and Luke 1.31-33 shows another significant pause or gap in prophecy regarding the coming of the Messiah. We can think of it this way. God appointed 490 years of special focus on Israel and his redemptive plan. The years were paused by Israel's rejection of Jesus. Now there's no special focus on Israel and God's redemptive plan because this is the time of the church. God's focus will return to Israel when the church is taken away at the rapture and the last seven years of man's rule on the earth begin. I love the song we were singing earlier, the spirit and the bride say come, right? The spirit and the bride say come, just that anticipation for Jesus' return. And the exciting thing is that the next thing to unfold in these end times uh, timeline is the rapture, right? We're going to be caught up with Christ in the clouds, We're going to be caught up out of here, right? That's pretty awesome, right? We're looking forward to that. So with the church gone, this is what's going to happen next. He, the Antichrist, will confirm a covenant with many for one week, one seven-year period. He will confirm a covenant with the Jews. Remember this covenant, this prophecy is all about the Jews, right? It's all about the Jews. He'll confirm a covenant with many, with many Jews, Uh, with big promises of rebuilding a temple. If it hasn't been rebuilt at that point, he'll come alongside them and he'll be their friend. He'll he'll champion them. He'll say, I'm going to come alongside you. I'm going to make all the things you need happen. I'll I'll take back the Temple Mount if that's what we need to do. And uh, he's going to make a covenant with Israel for seven years. He'll smooth talk them. He'll persuade them into this covenant and the Jews will be overjoyed. They will be overjoyed. Jesus predicted this to happen. John 5, 43, I've come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. They will receive the Antichrist. The Jews uh, did not accept Jesus as Messiah because he didn't come to deliver them from Rome, right? He didn't come with this politically-led revolution. He didn't fit their ideas of what the Messiah should be. The Antichrist will fit their ideas exactly. He will fit it perfectly. But in the middle of the week, in that middle of that seven-year period, 3.5 years in, he'll go back on his covenant with them, not just by breaking the covenant with them, but he'll also stop all the sacrifices and the offerings to God in their temple. 
The end of the sacrifices will come with abominations. Abominations in Hebrew is shakuts, referring to idolatry. So it's going to be this terrible idolatry going on, which Jesus refers to as the abomination of desolation in Matthew 24. This idolatry is the Antichrist. He sits on the throne in the temple of God and declares himself to be God, which we see in 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 through 4, let no one deceive you by any means, or the day that will come unless the falling away comes first. And the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, the one who opposes and exalts himself above all and is called God that is uh, above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. These last 3.5 years following this event will be horrific. They'll be horrific years. Bible.org gives a short synopsis of what will happen in that time period, pulling from Revelation 16, the vile judgments. The first vile causes giant sores on all those who reject Christ instead of accepting the mark of the beast. They signify their worship to the mark of the beast. They reject Christ, they accept the mark of the beast, and they will be, they'll have giant sores all over their body. Then the second vial poured out on the sea, turning it to blood as of a dead man. Every living creature in the sea will die. Then he'll turn the river and other water sources to blood. The sun's heat will intensify until ungodly men blaspheme the name of God. I don't think that's the kind of global warming that they're talking about, but this it, it will happen. Global warming will happen. The fifth vial will cause darkness to cover the throne of the Antichrist and his entire kingdom. The sores will continue unrelentingly, producing such agony that men will gnaw their teeth for pain and blaspheme God and refuse to repent. The sixth vial sends lying demon spirits out to the kings of the whole world to bring them down to the battle of the great day of God Almighty, which is the battle of Armageddon. The seventh seal uh, vial results in a judgment of Almighty God that destroys the entire world and judges all unsaved men severely. But even though enormous hailstones fall, the unregenerate still refuse to repent. This judgment is so devastating that it prepares the world for one for the coming Christ to set up his kingdom. In Revelation 18, we see the destruction of the New World Order. So when you hear the World Health Economic Forum, WHO, you, um, or what's the Economic Forum? World Economic Forum, sorry, blanking. When the World Economic Forum talks about the New World Order, this is just playing into God's big plan. Um, they think they're being creative and you know thinking of something new. God's already thought of it all. Revelation 19, we finally witness the glorious appearing of Christ in power and great glory as the King of kings, the Lord of lords, to set up his thousand-year reign on earth, okay? So in the 70 year, 70th period, the 70th se uh, seven years, the six prophecies will be completed, right? And I'll just brush through these really quick. So the finishing of the transgressions of the nation of Israel, to make an end of sins of the people of Israel, to make reconciliation for iniquity for the nation of Israel, the transgressions of the nation of Israel, uh, to bring everlasting righteousness, which refers to that messianic thousand-year reign, to seal up the vision and prophecy, all those things will be completed and fulfilled completely, and to anoint the most holy within the holy of holies and the new temple built in the millennial kingdom. So all that will take place in that 70th week. 
So we have all of this going on, right? And uh, John Corson has this amazing quote when we're studying passages like this that I think it's great to bear in mind. He says, The purpose of prophecy is not to satisfy our curiosity. It's not to satisfy our curiosity, but it's to motivate us into activity. We can read these things, see these things, and say, wow, I'm, I'm sure glad I know. Too bad for everyone else, right? Studying prophecy in Scripture should bolster our faith. It should strengthen us to share the hope we have in Jesus with others. But more than anything, it should put us on our knees in gratitude before the King who has decided to save us. I was on a walk with my wife this past week, and we were talking about birth. She's pregnant right now, and um, about halfway there, we're talking about birth and, and birth pains and stuff like that. It reminded me of um, the passage in Matthew where Jesus is describing the stage of the end times that we're in. And he talks about, he compares this time to birth pains and the time to come. He, he, he compares it to birth pains. And I thought it was so powerful um, that because birth pains are not just pain for the sake of pain, Right? It's not just difficulty for the sake of difficulty, but it's uh, for something greater. It's for something beautiful at the end. So beautiful that you'd be willing to do it all over again, right? You'd be willing to do it all over again because of the result. In the same way, I think we can get overwhelmed. We can get fearful about the things that are to come. But the reality is that if we're in Christ, we're going to miss most of these things. We need to uh, turn this understanding that we have of these prophecies and allow our hearts to be moved for those who are around us. Allow our hearts to be moved for those who are in our circles, that we can share the gospel with them. We can share the hope that we have in Jesus. Next time something crazy happens out there in the world and your coworkers talking about it, you can say, oh, Jesus has a plan. He's, he's already seen this. He already knows. Let me tell you about it. Let me tell you about God's big plan. So God desires that every one of us, every person on earth should be saved. 1 Timothy 2, 3-4, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of our God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. 2 Peter 3, 9, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some can count slackness, but is long-suffering and patient toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. I know this has been a dense passage today, right? It's been dense. But just remember, if you remember nothing else, that God has a plan for humanity that he's unfolding. He's working out from the beginning of time to the end of time. And the next step in his big plan is the rapture of the saints. And then it'll be the judgment for those who don't accept him. Let's make sure we take the call seriously to share whenever we can, however we can, with whoever's around us, the hope of Jesus that we have in us. So we're going to take a moment to reflect on the sacrifice of Jesus in our place by taking communion. If you need a cup, will you just raise your hand? If you didn't get a communion cup, will you just raise your hand? We'll, we'll get one to you. And I just want you to know that um, as we're reading this passage and as uh, the worship team is playing, you can take the, the bread and the juice whenever you feel ready. Um, it's really just a moment to reflect on the goodness of Jesus for making a way for us, right? He made a way for us when there was no way. He made us uh, into right relationship with God. 
We're so grateful for that. So I'm going to read this passage here, and you can take communion as you will. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Lord, we're so grateful that you're coming. We're so grateful that that's the next step in your plan. Lord, help us not to be selfish in that. Help us not to just uh, satisfy our itching ears and our curiosity about these things, but help us to be motivated into activity, to reach out to those around us however we can. Lord, you can use unorthodox situations to, to help us to minister to those around us, Lord, and we just want to be a part of your big plan. Lord, we trust you. We love you. Just work on our hearts, God, as, as things unfold in our world. Lord, help us to be uh, servants with eyes wide open, Lord, to what you're doing. And I just pray that we would not, not um, grieve the Holy Spirit, that we wouldn't just uh, shove him down when he's prompting us to speak out or to minister to someone in our lives, but that we would be obedient to you. In Jesus' name, amen.